God, if you would, once again this week, find your place in Luke chapter 11. It's exactly where we were last week. I enjoyed that song. That's a tremendous message. On Wednesday night, we learned uh, about a little bit about Elijah. And we learned that Elijah was a man subject to like passions as we are. He dealt with the same things that we deal with. In fact, in the lesson that he taught, my dad taught Wednesday night, he taught us that Elijah was dealing with some depression. He was dealing with some anxieties, and, and really the Lord helped him through that. I believe that's why Peter says, Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities, that the power of Christ may dwell upon me. Basically, if we had no weaknesses, we would need no help from God. But it's through our weaknesses, not that Paul's glorying that he is weak, but Paul's glorying that Christ can help him become strong in his weaknesses. And that's a tremendous message. May we never forget that our God helps us through things, helps us through difficulties and even depression in Elijah's case. That's a tremendous message. Tonight in Luke chapter 11, as we discussed last week, uh, a little bit about prayer. Uh, And that's exactly what Christ deals with in the first part of the chapter, a little bit about prayer. Well, this week, we're going to discuss a kingdom divided. Uh, Some of Christ's opposition come to him, and they're very negative about all the things that Christ is doing in his ministry. And they always have a problem, and, and they say, you cast out devils in the name of Satan himself. And that's really where we find ourselves in Luke chapter 11 and verse 14. Right on the heels of being able to teach his disciples how to pray. I'm sure that was somewhat of a spiritual high for those guys. Verse 14. And he was casting out a devil. And it was dumb. And it came to pass when the devil was gone out, the dumb fake, and the people wondered. But some of them said... He casteth out devils through Beelzebub, the chief of the devils. And others, tempting him, sought uh, sought of him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said unto them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and a house divided against against a house falleth. If Satan also be divided against himself, how shall his kingdom stand? Because ye say that I cast out devils through Beelzebub. And if I, by Beelzebub, cast out devils, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore shall they be your judges. But if I, with the finger of God, cast out devils, no doubt the kingdom of God has come upon you. And I like this next verse. When a strong man, armed, keepeth his palace, his goods are in peace. Pay attention in verse 22. But when a stronger than he shall come upon him and overcome him, he taketh from him all his armor wherein he trusted and divideth his spoils. He that is not with me is against me. And he that gathereth not with me scattereth. Gracious Heavenly Father, we are so honored to be part of your church tonight. We're thankful for this congregation and this assembly. Lord, this church is made up of much more than just walls and bricks and mortar. It is truly made up 
of a regenerate congregation of believers who are wanting to hear from you. Lord, it would be in vain we met tonight if your spirit did not fall upon us. Lord, it would be in vain that I preach this message without your spirit. So, Father, we ask for both things tonight, that your spirit would rest upon us in a mighty way, and that each and every one of us would discover some new morsel, some new idea, some new decision that we could all make to further our Christian walk for you. It's in your Son's precious and holy name I do pray. Amen. The Christian life is a life full of decisions. You know, each year we head off to youth camp and we take your teenagers and we take the teenagers of this church off to youth camp. And our goal is that each and every one of them would make a decision to trust Christ and follow Christ with their life. And we make a big updo about it. You know, we get the charter bus and we raise the money and we have the auctions and we do all the fundraisers. But at the end of the day, my prayer for you is no different than our prayer for the teenagers as they head off to youth camp. My prayer for you is that you would decide fully and wholly to trust Christ with your life. And for more than just salvation, but truly for obedience to Him for what He's done for us. The Christian life is a life of decisions. It was June 12, 1994, when a lady by the name of Nicole Brown Simpson and a man by the name of Ronald Goldman were stabbed to death and found in the courtyard of Nicole's condominium. The next day, Nicole's husband was notified, and he had somewhat of a strange reaction, but it was just five days later on June 17, 1994, when Orenthal James Simpson was pursued by the police for murdering his wife. Now, if you know anything about what I'm talking about, you'll remember that it was a very strange situation A man by the name of O.J. Simpson, or Orenthal James Simpson, was pursued by the police for almost 50 miles at a speed of around 35 miles per hour. Not exactly what you would call a high-speed chase. Uh, Mr. O.J. Simpson's friend was actually driving the vehicle. It was a light-colored Bronco, and, and this chase began to ensue, and the only reason the police did not do something to inhibit the chase further was because Mr. Simpson was in the back seat of his automobile with a pistol held to his head, threatening to commit suicide. Doesn't sound like an innocent man to me. But so, basically, around 50 miles later, they peaceably pull into the driveway of Mr. O.J. Simpson the police are able to come and arrest him, and and they're able to take him to court for trial for murdering his wife and this man. From November 1994 to October, there was a trial, October the next year, there was a trial that took place for Mr. O.J. Simpson to see if he was the man who truly murdered his wife and this man. Now, many of you probably can recall where you were at many of these situations. You probably remember uh, what happened the night of the uh, car chase because, in fact, they left the NBA Finals to go to a low-speed chase of Mr. O.J. Simpson. It was a big deal. It was kind of unique because during the course of this trial dignitaries and celebrities and normal citizens became enthralled with whether Mr. Simpson was innocent or guilty. 
One famous dignitary got off the plane, shook Mr. President Clinton's hand and said, Do you believe he's innocent? That was her greeting to Mr. Clinton was, Do you think O.J.'s guilty or not? This trial took over the nation. It's, everybody was following it. And everybody watched as this trial took place on television. But really, the climax of the trial happened at closing argument. There was a man by the name, uh, and it was actually Mr. Simpson's attorney, Johnny Cochran. Now, all the evidence had been submitted. And I'm just going to lay out for you a few of the things that have happened. Mr. Simpson, his blood was found at the scene of the murder. And it matched. There's a chance that it was not his. In fact, it's a 0.5% chance that it was not his. Mr. Simpson was uh, actually in his automobile, was blood of Mrs. Nicole. And, and so it looks somewhat like an open and shut case. But at the closing argument, Mr. Cochran uttered these very famous words in reference to a glove that the trial really centered around. If it doesn't fit, you must acquit. If it doesn't fit, you as a juror must acquit. Essentially what Mr. O.J. Simpson's attorney was saying is, if the evidence presented does not match my client fully, he's innocent. Can I say to you today, as we look at this passage, Jesus was on trial. Before peers, before people who were opposed to his ministry, they said, if you are who you say you are, show us. Can I say, first of all tonight, that if Jesus was not who he said he was, he was a liar or a lunatic. But if he truly was who he said he was, he is absolutely Lord of this earth. Today... I want to be careful here. I do not want to put Jesus on trial. But I want to look at the trial of Jesus in the Bible, and I want to look at four items quickly tonight that I believe will help us decide if Jesus was who he said he was. First of all, in verse 14, what really sparked this whole controversy was a divine action. A divine action in chapter 11, verse 14, the Bible says... And this is speaking of Jesus. He was casting out a devil, and it was dumb, meaning that the devil had ceased a man from speaking. And it came to pass, when the devil was gone out, the dumb spake, and the people wondered. I'm glad tonight that my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, had power not only in heaven, but on this earth to do miracles just like this one in the Bible. And it was because of this great miracle that he had throngs of people following him. Many came to just see if they could be healed themselves. Many came to see if their family members or friends could be saved or healed. Many, I believe, came to just watch this miracle man. But right here tonight, I see that there were two reactions to this action that Jesus performed. You would think that everybody would just be so excited that he cast out a devil... And that is the first reaction. It is a reaction of rejoicing. For it's when you see in verse number 14, the Bible says, And the people wondered. Now, we understand that the word wondered can mean 
questioning and thought, I wonder what we're going to have for supper tonight. We understand that's a way to use that word, but that's not the way the Bible is using this word tonight. The word wonder truly means to wonder, wonder at, to marvel, or be had in admiration. As these people viewed the divine action of our Lord and Savior that night, they saw something miraculous. And for the most part, the majority of those people knew what was going on, and they said, wow, that's awesome. For instance, there's a man who, I don't know how long this man has not spoke. The Bible does not give us a clue. But could you imagine being married to this man? Every woman in the house says, I wouldn't mind if my husband went dumb for a little bit, couldn't speak. I I wouldn't mind. Could you imagine if your father had a demon that would not allow him to speak? I don't know how long this man had not spoken, but I know it was some time because everybody around knew the man could not speak. Jesus casts out the demon casts out the the inability to use his mouth, use his tongue. He gets rid of that, and the man probably says something like, We welcome you all that joined by live streaming radio tonight. We appreciate your presence here. Wouldn't that be what you would say? It It would be something of excitement. It would be something of rather glorious joy. It would be, before I couldn't speak, Before I I tried, but the words wouldn't come out. But now, because of this man, Jesus, and his touch on my life, I now can use my mouth. And everybody around had a similar reaction. I'm sure his son said, Dad, you can speak. I'm sure his wife said, "Uh." I'm sure she said, Honey, I'm so excited. Can you imagine, for the most part, everybody's reaction was, Jesus has done a mighty work today. Let us glorify Jesus. Can I just stop right here and tell you, Christian, the Lord is using the Joshua Baptist Church. This morning we saw a family join. This morning we saw a lady baptized. This morning there were people saved. I promise you, the Lord is using Joshua Baptist Church. And my heart's desire for us is that we not be like one of the nine lepers who did not return to thank the Lord Jesus, but that we would turn back and say, Lord, thank you for allowing us to be used in your service. Man, make sure we have a a reaction of rejoicing, one of happiness. At the end of the day, are we not all sinners saved by grace? At the end of the day, do we have any business being used by an almighty, holy God? Absolutely not. So let us rejoice in the fact that He chooses us to work for Him. We see the first reaction, which was a reaction of rejoicing, but secondly... I see that this divine action was met with a little bit of resistance. Verse 15, But some of them said, but I, I want to read it like my mind reads it though, but some of them said, because that's how my mind reads it, but, but some of them said, He casteth out devils through Beelzebub, the chief of the devils. Jesus has done a miracle. For the most part, everybody is elated. Everybody is saying, oh, Jesus, 
We knew you could do it. We knew you had power. Every other person had tried getting rid of it. He'd seen doctors. He'd seen everybody. But Jesus, you're the master physician. Jesus, you have the power over demons. Jesus, you're amazing. And then some of them stood over in the corner and with a grubby-nosed attitude said, he casts out demons in the name of Beelzebub. This miracle that you all are cheering for is no big spectacle at all. For it's in the name of Satan himself that he casts him out. You see, let there be no confusion tonight. Beelzebub is first mentioned in 2 Kings. In 2 Kings, we see that Beelzebub is mentioned. Uh, Beelzebub is a Canaanite fertility god. Uh, We see that there's a king, Ahaziah, fell... And he says, go call on the God. He's a false God. And so when the Bible says Beelzebub, it's not saying another God because later on Jesus in verse 18 says, hey, look, guys, I don't cast him out of Beelzebub because if Satan. So let there be no confusion. They're saying Jesus is doing the miracles in the name of Satan himself. I believe God's using us. I don't know why, because we have nothing to offer Him. But let me just stop right here and say, there will be those that will sit in the back and say, 74-year-old preacher, they'll say, he doesn't have very many good years left. Hey, I I think God can do exactly what he did for Moses, uh, being 80 years old and being stronger than any 40-year-old man in all of Israel. There will be those who say, ah, that's just a bus kid saved. There will be those that say, oh, he's only seven years old. He probably doesn't even understand he's a sinner. Don't be one of them. When the Lord Jesus Christ comes to this church and does something miraculous and says, hey, on Roundup Sunday, we can line this altar once again with people that get saved. If if this church is used for God, we can see miracles for Him, whether it's in the bus ministry, whether it's in the new buildings, whether it's in this auditorium, we see uh, scores come to know Christ. Whether it be the Lord Jesus Christ just saying, I will bless the Joshua Baptist Church, and I will use the Joshua Baptist Church, don't be one of them that sits in the back and says, ah, it'll never last. This revival will not be prolonged. Revivals are short-lived anyway. I believe revival can change this nation, not because of you and I, but because the power of God. And it's through that power that I pray every day for this church that we would see revival in our hearts. And that this church would spark a revival that would not last days, would not last weeks or months or years, but would last decades and impact this continent for the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't be one of them. Because there are those. And if you hear one of those, tell them to be silent. Tell them to stop at their mouth. Because they speak folly. 
The Bible speaks a little bit about answer not a fool according to his folly. And anybody that utters words like, uh, God can't use this church for very long, or oh, the, uh, this church has been disqualified from its founding, you hear those words, just discard them as one of them. A divine action. And there's two reactions, which will be your action. We see a divine action. Secondly, look, a divided approach. In verse 17, we see they attribute the work of Christ to Beelzebub. We've already discussed that it's no mystery. They're saying that Jesus is doing something in the name of Satan. This is not a miracle for God or of God. This is a miracle of Satan himself. Verse 18, Jesus answers them and says, uh, I'm sorry, verse 17, A kingdom, uh, but he knowing their thoughts said unto them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation. And a house divided against a house falleth. Now that might be wise for some of you who are struggling at home to mark. Because a father and a mother pulling two different directions will never work. A house divided. We see right here, Jesus says, If Satan also be divided against himself, how shall his kingdom stand? Because ye say that I cast out devils through Beelzebub. Does it make any sense? Jesus answers them really in a very hysterical way. He says, does it make any sense to you that Satan would work against himself? I remember when I was uh, in PE, we would always pick teams. And and something we would always jokingly say to somebody who was having a bad game, we would always say, hey, man, you're the best player on their team. The quarterback would throw an interception. Man, I tell you what, you're, you're playing good for them today, aren't you? You see, that's basically the answer Jesus has. Why would Satan, or why would Satan's prophet cast out Satan's demon? It makes no sense. It's folly that that you would say a kingdom divided would last, but truly a kingdom divided separates and falls. Now on the screens we will see what is called the iDrive system. There it is. Yesterday on visitation, Brother Jared Butterfield introduced me to this beautiful work of art. He showed me that he was at half price books. And he was going through, we pay him better than that, he's just a cheapskate, okay? Don't worry about that. And we were discussing a little bit about this, and he said, I went into Half Price Books, and I saw something I just could not believe. The iDrive system. He showed me a picture. Let me introduce to you what the iDrive system is. It is a harness or a, a device that allows you to strap items that you're using to your steering wheel. For instance, it's shown there that your iPad can be strapped to your steering wheel. The beautiful thing about it is they say that you can surf the web while driving. They say that you can also catch up on your reading while you're driving. And if that's not enough, you can actually work. And it shows a man with a giant 1938 calculator accounting, and he's working. Our culture is so driven, so busy, that we've decided to multitask on everything. 
we've decided that it's not good enough to wake up 15 minutes early, put our makeup on, but instead we're going to do that going down the road while watching our eye drive. On top of that, since it's not Sunday, we stopped into Chick-fil-A and grabbed some chicken and biscuits, and we're eating our chicken and biscuits while applying our makeup, while watching Finding Nemo on our eye drive, while dodging in and out of the Chryslers and the, and the Cobalts, cursing them out because they're not paying attention. You know, I, I thought that was humorous. Brother Jared showed that with me. But can I just stop right here and, and say, I think there's too many people that are theologically multitasking. You say, what do you mean? I say their priority is not pleasing God. And in our lives, we can never be what we need to be for the Lord if we have other things taking His place. For instance, if we're missing our day-to-day devotion with the Lord for work or for play, we're theologically multitasking. And we're de-elevating the position where God deserves and putting it on the plane with everything else. And truly, we're making God no better than the iDrive system. God, I'll just throw you here so that I can do you while I'm doing everything else. But that's not at all what God says. A kingdom divided cannot stand. And I don't believe a Christian who has divided devotion can stand either. A divided approach. The Bible says in Matthew 6, verse 24, No man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to one and despise the other. He cannot serve God and mammon. Luke chapter 16, verse 13, echoes almost the exact same sentiments, but it says, a servant cannot serve two masters. James 4, verse 4 says, ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. There is no uh, duplicitous Christians. There's no Christians that can have a devotion to one and equally to our Lord. For instance, your checking account cannot be your driving motivation in your financial decisions. Say, well, give it all Sundays coming up, but I just can't afford it this year. You have the wrong devotion. Our devotion ought to be, God, I know you can provide. I know you can do what you've said you will do. So I will do exactly what you tell me to do. I hope we're not theologically multitasking. We see a divided approach, and we see in verse 21 and 22 now a definite advantage. And this is really my favorite part of the sermon tonight. So basically, if you've been thinking about other stuff so far in the sermon, now's when I would ask you to really focus in on verse 21. These people have come to Jesus. You're, you're doing all these miracles in the name of Beelzebub himself. Jesus says that makes no sense because how could a kingdom divided stand? How can a house divided stand? Why would I, in the name of the devil, cast out devils of the devil? Well, that doesn't make any sense. But in verse 21, Jesus says, When a strong man around keepeth his palace, his goods are in peace. Now, if you ever wanted a verse... To defend you having a gun and owning it and protecting your home, there she is. A strong man protects his house. But verse 22, 
but when a stronger than he shall come upon him and overcome him, he taketh from him all his armor wherein he trusted and divideth his spoils. Now do not get which man is strong and do not miss which man is strong in this story. Jesus says, there's a strong man in the house. Can anybody tell me where Satan's residence is now? He is the prince and the power of the air. It is, this world is his domain. He tries getting Christians to fall. He tries getting us to fail. This is where he lives. A strong man lives in this world. But Jesus says, but when a stronger comes... Guess who's stronger? Let me get very theologically deep. Jesus is stronger than the devil. You say, brother, I know you didn't go to Bible college for four years to learn that. That's a valuable lesson if you could ever get it down. Jesus is stronger than the devil. And he says, when a strong man guards his house and trusts in all of his weapons and his armor, uh, when a stronger man comes, his weapons don't matter. His armor that he trusted in will soon vanish away. Now, I'm not going to lie to you folks. I protect my home. And I think I protect it pretty well. There's a man by the name of Brother Kirkland, I believe, and he speaks a little bit about protecting his home. We actually supported him as he started a church in Ohio. And he came to the youth department. He talked a little bit about his dad when he was younger and his dad wanting the screen door always locked. And he said, well, why, why, why does it matter that I would lock the screen door? Any thief, any murderer, anybody's going to break through the screen door. And his dad said, but it might give me two more seconds. You know what? I've got every door. I've got two doors between my, my front door and my bedroom. I've got a dog gate got up that you'd have to jump through because it's all, you know, tr- you know, rigged so you wouldn't be able to get through silently so that my ninja warrior ears can hear you coming through. If you do last through the first pistol, you might not last through the second. And say you do last through both of those, you probably wouldn't last through the 12-gauge. A strong man guards his house. But when one stronger comes, it does not matter the armor he has. Take solace in this, Christian. Greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. The Bible makes no bones about it. Jesus is stronger than the devil. The Bible says in Romans 8.31, What shall we say then to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? The Bible says in Genesis 3.15, From the foundation of the world it says, And I will put enmity between thy seed and her seed. I will put enmity, uh, It shall bruise thy head, but it shall bruise thy heel. Let me give you a great interpretation of this. You ever been walking through the house and stump your toe? You say your Christian word. You stump your toe, and I don't know why, but it feels like somebody just shot you when you stump your toe. Why does it hurt so insanely bad? You stump your toe. 
That's exactly what the Bible says Satan has the power to do to Jesus. He bruises heel. But at the end of the day in Genesis 3.15, when this world is gone, Jesus has power not only to cast Satan into hell, Jesus has power to bind him up for a thousand years. Jesus says, hey, Satan, get in your chains. Stay there. Sit. Stay, boy. Good boy. That's what the Bible says our Lord and Savior has power over the devil to do. He's stronger than the devil. Don't ever fear the devil because greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. Our Lord has a definite advantage. Finally tonight, I want to quickly take a look, and we're almost done. You say, Brother Andrew, we're, we didn't stay very long. Well, sometimes it don't take long to preach a lot of Bible. But in verse 23, we see a deciding accusation. Jesus makes no bones about the phrase that he is about to say. He wants there to be no confusion at all. No gray area. Verse 23. He that is not with me is against me. And he that gathereth not with me scattereth. You know, the Bible says this same verse almost verbatim four different times. Mark 9, verse 40, Luke 9, verse 50, Matthew 12, verse 30, and here in Luke chapter 11, verse 23. Jesus said things, and when the Bible repeats those things, it is emphasizing them, saying, get this, and Jesus just plainly, no no King James English here, He who is for me is with me. He is against me is not with me. Very simple. Everybody, please take your Bibles. And I want to show you a a passage in Revelation. In the Revelation chapter 3. Now, this isn't exactly what this is saying here in our passage, but I believe it relates quite well. Revelation Chapter 3 and verse 14, I'll begin reading. And unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would that thou wert cold or hot. So then, because thou art lukewarm, and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Because thou sayest, I am rich, and increased with goods, and have need of nothing, and knowest not that thou art wretched, and miserable, and poor, and blind, and naked. You see, it's not a matter today of whether you're for Satan or for Jesus. It's really a question of whether you're wholly for Jesus or partly for anything else. Because our Lord hates lukewarm. Our Lord says it makes Him nauseous. It makes Him nauseous because He wasn't lukewarm for us when He went to Calvary. He didn't go part of the way to Mount Golgotha. He didn't get there and say, you know, I think I've gone far enough. Truly our Lord is saying to you and me tonight, if you're not for me, you're against me. 
And, and our idea of four is a little skewed. Jesus says, I don't want you sort of for me. I don't want you a little for me. I don't want your time on Saturday. I don't want your attendance on Sunday or Wednesday. I don't want you praying every once in a while. I don't want you doing the deeds that you think Christians ought to do. I want you. I want your heart. I want every bit of you. I want it. And if I don't have that, you're against me. Because he doesn't like lukewarm Christians. He doesn't want part of us. He wants everything. Joshua chapter 24. Joshua receives a message from the Lord to give to the children of Israel. He preaches probably one of the greatest sermons ever recorded in the Bible. And let me just share with you that that's uh, a way for us to see that you don't necessarily have to be a preacher to preach. You say, what do you mean? I, I don't think it would be a bad thing if a deacon or a layman wanted to go preach at an elderly home. I don't discourage my teenagers. You don't have a call of God on your life. Well, you can't preach. I think it's wise for people to preach. Joshua wasn't a preacher. He was just a leader. He was actually a military uh, warrior. And he stood up one day and he says, God's given me a message. Do you remember how good God was for Abraham? Do you remember Abraham had faith in God? And do you remember God rewarded Abraham and gave him the son of promise? His name was Isaac. Do you remember how good God has been to us even when all of our nation and all of our fathers were caught in the land of Egypt, bound by Pharaoh as slaves? Do you remember that? Do you remember how God in divine providence gave Moses to deliver the children of Israel? Do you remember how that not only that God gave Moses to deliver us from Egypt, but that when we escaped Egypt, God had given us the land of Canaan, which which was a beautiful land that flowed with milk and honey. Children of Israel, do you recall this? He says, children of Israel, do you not remember that when we crossed the Red Sea, God was with us? Do you not remember that when we crossed the Red Sea, we came to a city that seemed impenetrable by the name of Jericho? The walls were great. It was too much for us to handle. And God delivered that city. Do you not remember, children of Israel? Do you not remember the victory of the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Herizzites? Do you not remember, children of Israel? Do you not recall how good God has been to us? And then he utters these words in verse 14. Now therefore fear the Lord and serve Him in sincerity and truth. And put away the gods which your fathers served on the other side of the flood and in Egypt. And serve ye the Lord. And if it seem evil unto you to serve the Lord, choose ye this day whom ye will serve. Whether the gods which your fathers served that were on the other side of the flood, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land ye dwell, But then he says this, But as for me, in my house, we're going to serve the Lord. God's calling you to a decision tonight. Each and every one of us. No one's exempt. 
Choose ye this day whom you will serve. For there's a lot of things calling for you. Materialism. Humanism. I'm making this one up, but occupationalism. I think you got what I meant by that too. There's a lot of things calling for you. And the Lord says, I don't want any halfway Christians. I don't want any multitasking theologians. I want wholehearted believers in me who will sell themselves for me and spend themselves in the service of the King. I recently read a story of an elderly couple who was celebrating their 60th anniversary. What a joyous occasion that must have been. And there was a young couple at this event, and they were both very excited to glean some information from the two elderly people who obviously had discovered some truths along the way. This young couple approached the elderly people, and they said, what is it that is kept you together so long? And the older man said, well, I'll tell you. At the very start of our relationship, we agreed that any big decisions that were to be made, I would make them. And my wife would handle all the smaller decisions. And before they ever even finished, the wife chimed in and said, and we haven't had to make a big one yet. That's pretty good. Tonight, there's a big decision in your lap. A big one. It affects not only you, but those who come in contact with you. It affects your family. It affects your co-workers. It affects everybody. But it's your decision. And that decision is no different than the one that Joshua laid in the laps of all those Israelites. Choose this day. Whether they be the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, or the gods which your fathers served in Egypt, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Can you look inside your commitment for God and say truly, You're wholeheartedly seeking Him because that's exactly what the Lord wants from you.